0: Welcome everybody to Media Sandwich, a podcast that endures even if the uh, soft part of my foot will not. Uh, I am Kyle Martinak, and I bring to you headlines of the entertainment industry and what I might think about them. Uh, yeah, but I did miss a week uh, last week, and I truly hope that I don't lose any of the handful of you who do listen to this show. Uh, I had to get surgery on my foot Uh, because I broke it a couple weeks back, and the amount of work involved to make sure that I could take some days off from my job and make sure that I can still move around my second-floor apartment, make sure that I'm covered in terms of childcare and healthcare stuff and my wife's schedule, it turned into my entire world for the last week or so, and it continues to. Uh, I apologize to my loyal sandwich heads, and uh, I... I had no tepid takes for you on some of the news going on that week, but I am back, and I'm coming to you from the recliner chair that I have not left in an entire friggin' week. Uh, It's not great. I've been locked in my apartment, drifting in and out of consciousness, watching movies, playing some games, doing some reading, a little bit of writing, and I'm only in a small amount of pain as long as I stay very stationary, but... Staying stationary comes with a lot of psychic damage after a while too, so yeah, I'll tell you that for free. Sitting still is awesome for like a day or two, and then after that it becomes the the worst. Uh, it really feels like the only function I have left is to talk, so let's talk. Uh, let's talk about... oh boy. Before we get started, for the love of Pete, I need to clear up some of the housekeeping items on... Uh, previous subjects that we've covered on the podcast on the last episode you heard me talk in depth about a star trek movie that's no longer happening damn it uh about an hour after i dropped the episode uh paramount was like nope just kidding matt shackman leaving this project so that he could direct fantastic four yeah that officially put the final nail in the coffin for this fourth uh kelvin timeline star trek movie So yeah, that rumor that I was talking a blue streak about on uh, episode 32 about uh, giantfreakingrobot.com told us all about how the Kelvin movies were going to recast the Next Generation uh, folks and it'd be a baton handoff to them. That all turned out to be total bullshit, so you can please disregard that. Uh, Their source is inside Paramount. Totally full of shit, so I will not be using that website as a source from now on, I don't think. But anyway, another item that got new development just recently. Remember how excited I was about uh, Hulu making The Devil in the White City? The story about the Chicago's World Fair and the the turn-of-the-century serial killer H.H. Holmes? I was really, uh, yeah, that sounded good to me, and I was talking about that a lot a couple weeks ago. As perfect as that sounded, well, uh, Keanu Reeves has left the project, so he remains firmly without streaming television credits. Uh, That would have been his first. And uh, yeah, I'm sure the Hulu series will still come to us someday, but it's not looking great uh, because it won't have Keanu as either a beleaguered architect or a suave murder doctor, whichever one he was going to play. But also... Uh, director Todd Field, whose movie, uh, Tar, I'm probably saying that wrong, but that movie that's making up a lot of headlines currently, Tar, uh, that guy, he quit the project today too. So that sucks. Uh, that project has been in development for like almost 10 years now. So this might be a sign that the current Hulu incarnation of it might be crumbling. Or it might just be that uh, scheduling conflicts, because all those people are very busy. Keanu's always busy. But anyway, the biggest news that I missed last week that relates back to previous episode fodder on this podcast, the community movie. Looks like it has an official, official, actually totally happening green light over at Peacock, of all places. So hey, good thing I forgot to cancel Peacock for the last six months straight. Uh, <laughs> I, I kid, Peacock is fine for the amount that you pay for its subscription, uh, the the free version of it kind of stinks the way free streaming services do, but you know, for like five bucks a month, it's not bad, it's got decent movies, especially right now for spooky season, a lot of the classic Universal Monster movies and their sequels are on there right now, so check those out, uh, it being October, but... Soon they'll have the fabled movie from the hashtag six seasons and a movie. Wow. And, and, and Peacock is really the right place for it, too. Dan Harmon was very quick to call Peacock the Greendale Community College of streaming platforms. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's kind of exactly right. Uh, I, I love Peacock to death, but it has a real like, well, at least you tried Bart Simpson with the cake, you know, kind of feel to it sometimes but it is the place uh, that gave ap bio its final two seasons and honestly if peacock had existed at the time you know that that last season of community would have fit perfectly on peacock as opposed to where it actually was try explaining that to somebody now somebody who wasn't in, who doesn't you know doesn't know the history of community try explaining to them that the final season of that show was on yahoo It still boggles the mind, uh, my mind at least. But anyways, uh, Dan Harmon also did answer the immediate implied question, is everyone coming back for this movie? And the answer is yes. Uh, Probably. Well, not Chevy Chase, obviously. Uh, Harmon actually said that he was not sure if it was legal or not for Chevy to return, which is an interesting and very fun way of saying no fucking way. But the next cast member everyone wants to know about, of course, is Donald Glover. Is Donald Glover coming back? And that one, Harmon gave a full-throated, probably, maybe. I hope so. We'll see. Uh, definitely, maybe. Uh, <laughs> can I get a little spicy on this for a second? I I perfectly understand why Donald Glover is the show's breakout star. I love the guy as Troy. He was terrific. Him and Danny Pudi together as Troy and Abed warmed my heart every week. I absolutely love that dynamic. They're terrific. I I don't find Donald Glover's return for this movie as vital as the rest of the internet seems to. I'm in favor of everyone coming back, obviously. I want that. Uh, I want him back, but I don't quite understand why Glover is the main concern for so many people. Community is an ensemble show, it always has been. And for my money, it's always been best with everybody going full bore at the same time. Community's later seasons don't have the same magic energy without the OG ensemble, you know, as the first couple of seasons. I realize that, and I think even Dan Harmon realizes that he doesn't—he doesn't like to say that quiet part loud about how the early seasons are just plain better, uh, especially when there there was like one season where he wasn't in charge of the show and he wasn't there. But I don't know. Am I the only one who's willing who would willingly trade Donald Glover's involvement for more screen time for everybody else? including the people that don't get enough credit for being on that show in the later seasons, like Paget Brewster, Keith David, Jonathan Banks. They're all terrific in those later seasons. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy for feeling that way. But at any rate, yay. Fucking yay. Community. It has a home. And now uh, now comes the long, drawn-out process of Dan Harmon sitting down and getting his ass to work on a script and then gathering... The study group for one last hurrah. Uh, at this point, they definitely can't be a study group. You know, I think by the end of the show, they were like an advisory committee for the school or something. But yay, that's the headline. Uh, that takes care of all the newest segment of the show, which we could alternately call updates or uh, maybe just Kyle was wrong or something like that. Uh, but that gets us into video game news, and and let's start with another fun curio. Uh, somebody a lot smarter than I am decided to do something gloriously goofy and created a fully functional version of Doom that runs in Windows Notepad. At 60 frames per second, mind you. Why? Well, that's unclear. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) that's unclear doom was in my personal history of video games it was like one of the first and only games that existed for a time i remember my dad playing uh wolfenstein 3d on the home computer and me kind of looking over his shoulder when i probably shouldn't have been and that was like the first instance of pc gaming i remember in my life but at the time in his office everyone was playing doom at their desks secretly i remember distinctly Uh, Doom, for whatever reason, it's just one of those landmarks of video game culture. It's been continuously uh, remembered and immortalized by developer folks in the form of making it playable in the weirdest ways possible. I read recently how someone got it running on one of those McDonald's order kiosks, like the self-serve touchscreen kiosk at McDonald's. Okay, weird place for Doom. Somebody made it playable within the Twitter app, uh you know tech and that's kind of cool and (laughs) this is the weirdest one by far weirder even than the one we're talking about somebody got doom running on a pregnancy test i didn't click on that one uh so i don't have the details i didn't click on it because frankly i'm afraid to combine the images of doom and pregnancy tests in my brain those two things should not go together but yeah, um, this total nerd, uh, I'm comfortable saying, this total nerd, uh, nerd, Sam Chiet, probably saying that wrong, sorry, he went viral over the weekend by revealing the classic first person shooter of my childhood running perfectly fine on the most basic ass application of all time, the Windows Notepad. Uh, it's funny because it kind of looks like Doom by way of the, the music video for AHA's Take on Me. You know, it's very, like, uh, pencil-y looking, but still remarkable to look upon. I can't believe it works. Um, it's a feat of, it's a feat of uh, uh, I don't know, engineering or something, I guess. Check it out. It's all over the place as of today, so just Google that, and that's a lot of fun. Um, less fun, less curio, uh, but more news that I missed during the, uh, the time I was away... Google Stadia is dead uh, <laughs> Google Stadia is dead <laughs> You and your friends are dead uh, Yeah, the tech conglomerate's half-baked, ill-advised, over-promised, overpriced, piece-of-crap foray into cloud-based gaming is officially shutting down on January 23rd But, I mean, come on, it, it pretty much was already dead as of now, right? It kind of died on the vine, considering it was only launched in 2019, and in only like a year, maybe a little more than a year, like, uh, I don't know, 14 months or something like that, Google shuttered their game development division that was supposed to provide one of the crucial things that Stadia never really had, titles, game titles, game titles with which we, the paying customer, might play. Uh, thus justifying the price of the service. And what a fucking price Stadia had. Honestly, I was encouraged by the concept of Stadia. Being an Android and Google user first and foremost in most of my stuff, I figured, hey, I got me a decent phone, I got a nice little Chromebook, I got a fairly stable internet connection here in the house... Uh, this is the future of gaming for me. For me specifically, the guy who can't put a lot of money into a new console every other frickin' year, or heaven forbid, a fully functional gaming PC, that that takes investment of time, effort, sweat, blood, tears, and money. Lots of money. And, I mean, for forget all of Google's lofty premises about multi-server, cloud-only game design and the future of the industry coming out of this. Forget all of that. It just sounded like a cool alternative to impossible to find next gen consoles, uh, especially during the height of lockdown. It sounded really good on paper. Um, I'm. I think if you listen to the show, you can guess that in in the part of my brain about video gaming, I'm easily taken in by radical new ideas like that. Or like you know, I was so impressed with the Steam Deck, uh, and. These ideas are, again, really good on paper. But the problem with about half of Google's weird little fart around projects that they always seem to have uh, is that they're fully dependent on us, the consumers, to pay today for a hamburger on Tuesday. Which isn't even the way that phrase goes, I realize that. But Stadia had a real, just pay for it now and wait patiently until it becomes what we actually sold it to you as kind of philosophy and it was supposed to be like the Netflix of gaming right but instead it was more like paying for a Netflix subscription and still going to Best Buy and buying every movie on Blu-ray and every TV show on Blu-ray uh there were no games in their library really and what games they did have were old titles that we already probably had on previous platforms and systems and because of licensing issues you usually had to buy the game outright anyway. So, yeah, what was the point of the fucking subscription fee for? It didn't help that, at the time, Microsoft came right back at them with Xbox Game Pass, which actually is the closest thing to a Netflix model for gaming. It rendered Stadia's entire concept instantly obsolete, unless they could get their shit together and make their own games that would be exclusive titles for it or at very least come up with a better price point or i don't know anything that might have set it apart as a more useful or more uh you know more economic choice than xbox's service and meanwhile stadia couldn't even boast basic functionality during the one Year that we had it available, they had crash problems, constant connection issues. It wasn't worth the trouble when Game Pass just worked right out of the box, so to speak. Yeah, when Google shut down their game development team, Stadia was pretty much dead at that point, right? It instantly went directly to becoming a, a, a B2B product. It, it, it was a non-announcement that they were pivoting the tech completely away from us, the consumer. You know, us, the fine folks who paid cash money for a product, then unwittingly became QA testers for said product, and then it shifted towards trying to entice their real customer, the developers, to sign partnership deals. That's where all the money was going to be, right? And that was like 18 months ago when that happened, so when they announced this news, you know, like last week or the week before, that they're shuttering Stadia completely and indefinitely... I don't think anybody was really surprised, right? It's honestly not even news. The real news is that Google's actually going to refund Stadia customers for any hardware and game purchases. Uh, That's nice, honestly. I didn't expect that. So yeah, um, pour one out for another of Google's really good ideas that died long before it actually reached any sort of potential. Just like Google Glass and uh, whatnot. You know, all all of their kooky ideas that aren't really major sources of income for them they're just you know fun larks for them to spend money on so yeah r.i.p stadia we barely knew ye because ye sucked uh (laughs) anyway let's talk about movies my sweet children oh boy we've had a rough couple of days in the realms of movies just recently uh the movie industry It giveth and it taketh away. Uh, I need another surgery now, because I have Whiplash from this last week getting the trailer for Violent Night, the David Harbour die-hard Santa Claus movie, and then immediately the next day getting the teaser trailer for Illuminations' Super Mario Bros. movie. Wow, what a cycle of online buzz and enthusiasm shifting completely in the other direction. People got so, so pissed about that Mario trailer, and... Uh, For what it's worth, I think the Mario movie looks terrific. Uh, The animation looks gorgeous to me. The entire opening bit with Bowser fighting the Penguin Army, guys, it seems to be going for the kind of humor present in the better Lego movies. Uh, A lot of great visual gags, timing, uh, Jack Black's Bowser seems like a really good time. I don't know, it seemed like fun to me. Outside of the controversy of the whole Chris Pratt of it all, I find nothing about this trailer that doesn't get me smiling and eager to spend money to take my kids to go see a well-crafted animated feature. I think it looks good. Does the choice of Chris Pratt as Mario bug me? Yeah, absolutely, of course it does. The, The last 20 years or so, animated film has gone down this terrible path with stunt casting. It drives me so damn crazy. Like, look, Angelina Jolie's playing a cartoon animal. Yay, I guess. I mean, did we need her? We. Seth Rogen's gonna hurt, hurt, hurt his way all the way through this movie, while, meanwhile, extremely talented voice actors have to make do with bit roles on Family Guy Season 30. Great. Grand. Wonderful. Now, keep in mind... Chris Pratt's vocal performance in the Lego movie is actually kinda wonderful, I thought. I, I think he's great in that movie. He absolutely owns that character, and he somehow he handles having most of that movie on the shoulders of his character, despite having a murderer's row of people behind him, because the character fit his comedic persona, right? Or the comedic persona that he that he had at the time. Have you seen that latest Jurassic World movie? Of all the things to be pissy about in regard to Chris Pratt, and believe me, there are plenty of them, my big beef is, when did he become such a plank of wood? What is up with, like, like, did, did, did becoming an action star just ruin him comedically? Now, to say that the problem is evident in the five big words that he uttered as Mario is a little bit ridiculous and unfair, and... Honestly, the internet getting so epically pissed about this trailer instantly makes me just kind of roll my eyes. I, I don't like that they cast him, and judging from that one line of dialogue, I don't like the uh, accent, or lack of accent, or let's just say the choices being made in the performance. I don't like it. It's irritating that more talented voice actors are being passed over in favor of something half-assed. There's an implication of smugness to the perceived lack of care involved in his choices. I agree with all of that. I grant you all of that. But having said all of that, the social media reaction to it is so irritating. I cannot abide the amount of energy people have put into making Fuck Chris Pratt a large piece of their online identity. And when you combine that with the amount of people who want to cut their wrists and bleed a pint over the depiction of Mario of all characters, it's just too much, man. I, I like Mario fine. I fully identify with fan feelings about Mario. Hell, I'm best friends with Chris Pranger, folks. He takes Mario more seriously than most. And I don't begrudge anybody taking it seriously. That's fine, but... You have to unplug for a second and see the reality of what this movie is. Firstly, it's a movie. Calm the hell down. You've seen 30 seconds of a movie that's aimed at children and it's not even finished being made yet. You might not be the target audience for this. You might not be the person that they're looking to court. Mario doesn't mean to the studio and to the distributor or even the director and indeed the actor playing him that Mario might mean to you. And not for nothing, this isn't the first time. This isn't the first time that this has been the case. We all love Bob Hoskins. And he definitely did show up to work and do the character justice, or some amount of justice, back in the day. But, I mean, it's not like he gave a shit. He was worried about—he wasn't worried about letting you down, you specifically. He was drunk with John Legazamo for much of the production of that movie. And he was, like, throwing his hands up and saying, Look, I don't get it. I don't know what any of this is. I'm just here to do the job. And think of it this way. This is the Angry Birds movie. Entertain this thought with me for a second. To most of the people who made this Mario movie a reality, this is the same exact thing as the Angry Birds movie. It is the equivalent in their minds. Go into this Mario movie expecting something akin to... The Angry Birds movie, and I guarantee you, you won't come out of it mad, because it looks so much better than that. More care was put into this than what could have been. Yes, even in Chris Pratt's performance. It's okay for things to just be fine. It's, it, does it suck that it's not as good as it could be? Does it suck that they didn't just take the obvious win and cast the guy who's been doing Mario in the games for so many years? it goes back to the sonic the hedgehog movie why did they decide to redesign the character to look like that when they could just make him look the way he's always looked who made that decision who took that unforced error and that's what the chris pratt casting as mario is it's an unforced error it's unfortunate it sucks to look upon it you know it makes you cringe when you, when you see it happen on the field but you just gotta get past it and, and keep watching the goddamn game. I mean, the game isn't over yet. It's okay for things to just be fine. People blow up about shit. It's nuts. Um, On a positive side, Violent Night looks like fun. I'm one of those people who get easily agitated when the Christmas decorations and flavors and music starts ramping up as early as October. That irritates me. I, I'm just irritated this week, aren't I? <laughs> I uh, I don't have enough pain meds in me because I am irritated by everything, but I have I have a feeling, I I get a feeling like the holiday vibes are on fast forward when that stuff arrives in October and it sucks because I like the fall I, I want October to last forever but I really enjoyed watching this trailer with David Harbor as a badass Santa Claus doing the John Wick or I guess more more accurately the Bob Odenkirk in Nobody kind of giddy, violent action, nonsense stuff. It's a, it's a really fun concept. And I can't believe it took this long for a movie studio to try this concept. But the casting of Harbor, spot on. And the tone of the trailer really suggests that this is gonna be silly in a fun way. That's nice, it's good. Uh, I'm excited to go see that. And it's smart from a marketing perspective, from a salesmanship standpoint. Is really a great idea, this trailer and everything. The holiday season hasn't had something like this at the box office really in a long time. In terms of, like, release dates, this movie feels as smart as putting Deadpool, you know, to release on Valentine's Day back in 2016. The era of the raunchy, R-rated, big-box comedy set at Christmas is kind of already over with. It was something that they tried for a few years to varying degrees of success, and, you know, it's kind of over with, so this is a great idea to replace it with another type of counter-programming to the typical family-friendly fare that we get around the holidays. So, so you know, kudos to Universal for nailing this, on paper at least. It looks good. And hey, speaking of Deadpool, there's another big, giant, I-can't-believe-it-happened-literally-within-an-hour-of-media-sandwich-being-uploaded news story attached to that. Ryan Reynolds, in his typically cheeky and some might argue overly cutesy way, announced via a funny video on Twitter that Deadpool 3, the much-anticipated sequel that will implant the character into the MCU proper for good, is coming soon, and it will have a very special return of Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. Huh. Yeah. Somehow, Wolverine has returned. Uh, Now, lots of People reacted by saying, wait a second, Logan was the perfect send-off of that version of the character and of Jackman himself, you really shouldn't mess with that. I, I don't disagree with that, but if I'm being perfectly honest, the Fox, X-Men canon and timeline got so convoluted and messy that I earnestly believe that Logan took place in an alternate timeline or something anyway. I, I don't know, but it doesn't really matter. And honestly, screwing up that epic walk into the sunset might be exactly the point of the joke for Deadpool 3. We don't know. Uh, Logan is kind of a standalone movie. And honestly, I mean, it is the best movie to ever come out of Fox's ownership of the X-Men rights, I will admit. But it doesn't really connect with the other movies that fundamentally. And as much as I myself enjoy a good piece of poetry in terms of an actor retiring a character after a long tenure... Look, none of it really matters. Disney most likely has been searching for a way to bring Wolverine back with a younger, cheaper actor since the ink dried on their acquisition of Fox, and that's gonna happen. Eventually. It is. So the sanctity of Jackman's nearly spotless run as the character, it means less than you might think. If, if indeed Jackman is returning because his post-Wolverine movie career has been spottier than he had hoped, That's a little bit deflating. That kind of sucks. I wish guys like him could escape the superhero machine and go do stuff that makes them happy. Like, you know, eating carbs. But (laughs) overall, this is to me a welcome diversion while Kevin Feige fiddly farts around with well, we're working on getting the X-Men, the MCU. Don't worry, we're working on it. It's coming. Don't we? Don't you worry? We just need to crack this nut and figure out how they fit into the greater ecosystem of the story that we've been telling, etc. Um, in case you, in case you can't tell, I think that that's a really poor excuse for why they haven't done something with the X-Men related stuff as of yet. They're moving really slowly with the stuff that they have. But anyway. I'll tell you who won't be making a cute announcement video about their appearance in Deadpool 3, and that's T.J. Miller. Who? T.J. Miller. Who? <laughs> Sorry. It's not 2015, so I don't remember who the hell that is. Uh, kids, T.J. Miller was the next big thing in comedy, TMTM. But you don't remember him because it came to light that he's a bit of a sex pest and an abusive egomaniac and a prima donna knucklehead who fancies himself too much of an artist to be bothered with basic professionalism. Allegedly. I guess. I guess allegedly. So yeah, that's why he disappeared so quickly that uh, most people don't even remember who the hell he is. Uh, It's pretty widely known. That at the very least, T.J. Miller's instant towering fame made him a huge pain in the ass to work with, at the very least, and an outright monster at the very worst. Uh, He hasn't been doing much since that stuff came out. He's mostly been touring as a stand-up, I think, but the other day he was on the Adam Carolla podcast... You know, that place where highbrow intellectuals go to whine about how the lack of beef stew in society is a symptom of the death of masculinity or some such bullshit? Remember when Adam Carolla went off about stew or something like that? Stew and bracelets? It's like, more guys wear bracelets than guys eat stew. And that's bad for some reason. What a weirdo. But uh, yeah, TJ Miller got on that show and volunteered to say that he would not return to the Deadpool franchise even if he were asked to be. (laughs) Because, uh, why? Because Ryan Reynolds was a big meanie to him and in character as Deadpool kind of went off on him during a take while filming the second movie. Like he improvised a take where he just kind of like cut TJ Miller down to size a little bit. And Miller's like, it's weird that Ryan hates me. That's what he said on The Corolla Show. He's, he's like, if they offered me double the money to return as Deadpool's very, very unessential lackey uh, weasel, who he played in those first two movies, he said if they offered him double the money to return, that he wouldn't take it. Now, this might be T.J. Miller's triumphant return to the world of comedy, in like an Andy Kaufman kind of esoteric way, because I'm laughing. I found it hilarious that the unspoken punchline of this whole story is that they did not ask him to come back. They don't want him. They offered him none of the money to return, let alone double the money. They didn't offer him a part. And the implication that Reynolds is like some kind of abusive co-star whose attitude just, that just sealed the deal, his behavior. That's the straw that broke the camel's back. I'm not coming back. Yeah, right, dude. (laughs) They don't want you back. Nobody wants to touch you with a 10 foot pole because you suck. This is the washed up dickhead comedian version of demanding a free meal at a restaurant. And then when you don't get it screaming, well, I will not be returning here. I shall take my business elsewhere. What a (laughs) what a dumb douchebag. Uh, yeah, so, uh, good on you T.J. Miller, uh, have fun not being in Deadpool 3. Uh, <laughs> I like that he tried to stir that up like it's some kind of controversy that, no, they don't want you in this movie because you are a bad brand now. Um, let's move on to comics. Uh, New York Comic Con happened this last weekend, and among all the new trailers and TV and movie announcements and even a... Uh, Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd reunion on stage, which was lovely and heartbreaking and not something that I should have watched while heavily medicated, but I did. Uh, there were there were some pieces of news in the world of actual honest-to-goodness comic books. One piece of news was the announcement that Joe Quesada, longtime Marvel mainstay and former uh, editor-in-chief, uh, would be doing some work over at the Distinguished Competition. Which kids? That's what Stanley jokingly called DC, Distinguished Competition. DC comic books were really corny back then. Uh, it was great, but anyway, <laughs> if you if you don't know the name Joe Quesada, he was an instrumental player in Marvel Comics, uh, staying afloat during their darkest hours back in the days of like the nineteen nineties, where they were selling off office furniture and basically giving away the rights to their characters. Uh, he was editor in chief at Marvel. Uh, who he helped shepherd the Marvel Knights imprint of the late 90s, early aughts, as well as the Marvel Max line. Now, both of those were stories that were specifically aimed at adult audiences thinking, hey, those are the people with the money who will buy comic books at a brick and mortar shop. So let's create some stories and some art that will draw them in. Things like Uh, jessica jones's title alias and the more gruesome punisher max series so he was one of the guys who fostered that new arm of the business as well as the marvel ultimate line of books which were reset stories to kind of provide cultural updates and a good new jumping on point for new readers it was a way to entice people back to characters they've had for so long and uh, yeah, the, the dude was also kind of known around the industry as the talent whisperer back then. He brought in Grant Morrison to do a bold new X Men series. Uh, of course Brian Michael Bendis, who was responsible for a lot of the Max uh stuff in the Ultimate Spider Man title. Uh, yeah, uh, and granted Joe Quesada is also known as the guy who was in charge with uh the. Probably worst moment in Spider-Man history, uh, the one-more-day controversy. Go ahead and read up on that if you don't know what I'm talking about, but... Yeah, uh, when Disney restructured Marvel from a comic book company to a multimedia empire, Joe Quesada suddenly became one of the guys responsible for moving the characters from page to screen, and he was heavily involved with the Netflix Marvel shows. Which makes sense, you know, those shows are essentially the Marvel Max and Marvel Knights titles that we talked about um, in TV format. So, that was a weird shift for him professionally, I think. As you might guess, it got a little less congenial when Kevin Feige reorganized Marvel even further to put himself in charge of literally everything uh literally everything that would be involved with the MCU and most of the stuff happening in the comics, he just kinda put himself he installed himself as the the king, and Quesada kinda got shoved to the side. And he eventually quit Marvel uh earlier this year back in the spring, but now he's going back to his roots as an illustrator, uh, for DC. That's how he got his start. He was he was an artist before he was one of the business dudes, and this sounds like a, a a pivot in his career, a quieter, kind of post-retirement kind of gig for him. And he'll be doing some covers for Batman and some other titles, and it it may lead to more inking work down the line for uh, actual book art. Uh, I'm encouraged. I, I say, you know, as an artist, I always dug Quesada's work. He goes very, very heavy on his inks, uh, gives his work kind of a signature... Boldness, a kind of glossiness that comics have moved away from a little bit in recent years. So yeah, it'll it'll give a very cool definition to cover art for Batman and others at DC. So huzzah uh, to Joe Quesada! You know, uh, go 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 with go with uh, good graces, I say. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about for comic books is Marvel related. Marvel announced a new series that sounds kind of cool. Back on Free Comic Book Day in the spring, we were introduced to Brielle Brooks, the Daughter of Blade, uh, the Daywalker Vampire Hunter Blade. Uh, So now she's going to have her own ongoing title, Bloodline, colon, Daughter of Blade. Cool. Uh, Marvel really has gone all in on teenage girls as the future of their character lineup. You know, they've got... Ms. Marvel is the really big one. Ironheart, uh, Kate Bishop is kind of the new Hawkeye. America Chavez, a character that people are a little more familiar with now after Multiverse of Madness. Um, They're all relatively new characters in Marvel history, serving to bridge the gap between older readers and newer readers. And uh, Brielle is, you know, the newest addition. So she's a teenager with normal teenage problems. And her blossoming vampire abilities are likely going to be, you know, kind of a fun metaphor for a teenager going through growing pains of becoming a young adult, hormones, stuff like that. It's a common formula, it's a common concept, happens to work really well in comic book superheroes. Uh, the book will be written by Danny Lore, whose resume includes a lot of that very concept, actually. Titles like New Mutants... Champions with uh, Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel, uh, and the Ironheart uh, series, as well as uh, some work on a Blade series previously and the Death of Doctor Strange arc. So, also, uh, uh, Danny Lore has some of that, uh, you know, dark, mystical aspect of the Marvel Universe under his belt. So cool. Uh, Speaking of that, the art will be by Karen Darbo whose biggest credit was Marvel's Crypt of Shadows. So yeah, she's also an ideal choice for the kind of gothic horror aspects of doing a Blade adjacent story. That sounds like fun. It sounds like uh sounds like a really cool way to uh move forward with Blade and of course we can't talk about a Marvel comic without talking about its connection to those movies and TV shows. Um Yeah, we haven't heard a whole lot about the upcoming Blade movie in the MCU. Uh, We did talk about the director a couple weeks ago, Bassam Tariq, but he's unfortunately left the project. Uh, Yeah, another one. Another director uh, signing off from a Marvel thing. So this is a movie that has no director, but it does, in comic book movie tradition, have a ticking clock, because it still has a release date of November 3rd, 2023. Like a li- just a hair's breadth more than a year from now, that movie's supposed to release. Uh, I think it's worth noting that Marvel is ramping up Blade's daughter as a character in the comics. With only about a year to go before that movie's release, um, you know I can't con- I can't I can neither confirm nor deny because I don't know anything that she might be an aspect of what the movie's about. Mahershala Ali is still going to star as Blade as far as I know but I think it's worth noting that he's kind of an older guy and he might not be keen on living the life of a Marvel superhero actor for that you know 10 year cycle of three to five movies that's it's strenuous and it kind of sucks like he him being Blade was his idea and it was his thing it was his baby but after doing it once, he might not want to come back. So it would be smart to build in kind of a trap door for him to escape out of by, you know, if the movie ends up being a father-daughter story, I wouldn't be surprised or really disappointed. Because I think that'd be a really good idea for where to take the character of Blade. And it would provide a way for, for him to step out of the role and hand off, you know, the baton handoff kind of scenario. Uh, yeah, so... Look out for Bloodline, Daughter of Blade, issue number one. That's on sale February 1st. And that was pretty much it for comics. I didn't have a whole lot, but uh, TV, TV news. Uh, Just one piece of industry news regarding TV. Robert Greenblatt uh, is a guy, (laughs) is a guy, in television, and he has signed a first-look deal with Hulu and Lionsgate Television to develop a limited series called Death at Penn State. Uh, This is, I I guess you would classify it as a true crime series, since it's based on the fraternity hazing death of a student named uh, Tim Piazza at Penn State a couple years ago. Uh, This was the subject of a really big piece for The Atlantic by Caitlin Flanagan back in uh, 2017. And the piece is an absolutely harrowing read. I read it this morning just to get familiar with the subject and oh boy, it kind it kind of weighed on me, not just because it details the story of Tim Piazza and, and his uh, horrible tragedy, but because it goes into really admirable detail as to the history and culture of hazing within the Greek fraternity system in American universities. I really recommend everybody read the the Atlantic piece, it's, it's really good journalism, but uh, the long and short of it, without overloading on how sick to your stomach it might make you, sorry I gotta go into a little bit of detail for context's sake, Tim Piazza was a college kid who in the course of being hazed at his frat house fell down a flight of stairs, which I mean, he was visibly in need of immediate medical attention. He had very obviously a concussion, some form of head trauma, internal bleeding. He ended up having a ruptured spleen, they found out later. All sorts of terrible, horrible injury. And his frat brothers tossed him on a couch, continued the hazing. They, I mean, fuck, dude. They poured beer on him. They threw shit at him. They punched him. They sat on him while he was, like, twitching and, like, you know, struggling to recover consciousness. They left him lying on a couch for 12 hours before calling 911. And, and it was way too late, and, and the poor kid fucking died. And if that's not enough to get your blood boiling... The Atlantic piece went into a lot of detail as to how this kind of shit happens all the time. And frat chapters make a good show of, sh- you know, really uh, packing down on on hazing culture and, and all of that shit and, and binge drinking and all of the stuff that leads to this kind of horrifying conclusion. But mostly they just make a good show of shutting down or disbanding certain chapters before basically tootling across campus and reopening under a different banner, it's basically, it's basically like the Catholic priests caught committing sexual assault. You know, they just clean it up, they swear it'll never happen again, and then they set them up in a different place so that it can totally, definitely happen again. Ugh, that's it's a lot. It's it's a bummer, and I'm sorry to bring bring everything down with such a bummer. But anyway, um, uh. Getting back to what we're actually talking about, Robert Greenblatt uh, will be making this limited series with Hulu, uh, and he's a TV veteran of pretty great repute. Uh, he was a producer on, I mean, a bunch of, you know, legendary television projects, Beverly Hills 90210, Melrose Place, X-Files, that was kind of how he spent the 90s, and then HBO's Six Feet Under, which I'm a very big fan of, uh, got my respect there. He worked uh, at Showtime to develop Weeds and Nurse Jackie. Most recently, he was involved with HBO's The Gilded Age, which I haven't heard a whole lot about, but uh, I, I've seen good things about it. He seems very, uh, very on the ball, f- seems very passionate about the subject matter, really wants this to be confrontational and a, and to spark conversation about the fraternity world and how... More needs to be done to prevent this kind of shit. Um, so good on uh, Greenblatt, you know, I, I hope uh, hope things go well for him and the project. My two cents on this, um, not to get too uncomfortable, but I guess I'm already getting there. I, I've become a lot less comfortable about true crime related stuff on streaming television. Which, like I said, this kind of, by default, hits that category, though it doesn't quite fit the same typical formula. But I read this Atlantic article about this horrifying shit, and I thought about how, right now, Netflix's number one piece of content this last week was that Jeffrey Dahmer series they did. And, yeah, the this Penn State series sure doesn't sound like it's going to be In that same vein exactly, you know, traipsing around as gleefully and horrific true events for entertainment fodder uh, as as the Jeffrey Dahmer series or really as any Ryan Murphy series tends to, Uh, that guy has a real tendency to do that. He really likes to sex up horrifying real events uh, for the purposes of entertainment in a way that's just a little bit sleazy in my opinion. Maybe I'm being a little harsh, but it it speaks to an ongoing thing in this new age of television to me. Uh, we're in this period of media where a despicable act of violence or cruelty is only one or two business steps removed from becoming a Ryan Murphy television joint, which has, you know, it has this unspoken stench of titillation that hangs off of true crime as a genre, like a rancid fart. It it's worse with the serial killer thirst trap shit. Like the three different depictions of Ted Bundy at the same time that we're all stressing how unmistakably hot the guy supposedly was and just get at it. Town with that shit. Honestly, I I know the weird sexual fascination some people have towards serial killers predates streaming television. It's it, I mean it predates the internet by decades. And also, I know that this Penn State series is a completely different ballpark. It's a different animal from that phenomenon entirely. But am I the only one who thinks that maybe some stories should only be told with the responsibility of a documentary perspective and without the flashy trappings of prestige cable drama? Maybe I'm alone in that. Maybe I'm the only one who feels like they need a shower when the final horrific hours of someone's life are made the equivalent of like, the crockpot death on This Is Us. You know, I find that weird. I find it a little gross. Um, speaking of a little weird and a little gross, this wasn't the way I wanted to end the podcast this week, but it, do- it, it, it doesn't really fit into any of my usual categories, for one thing. But the whole of the entertainment industry is talking about it as I record this, so I might as well get my thoughts in a format that's better for it than, say, a glib tweet or even a glib tweet thread. Uh, Kanye West. Look, I don't pretend I have anything intelligent to add to this ongoing discourse. If we take it back a couple of years, you see how Kanye's behavior and his mental state have been treated as headline fodder first and foremost. You know, the, the freak show factor of celebrities spending their unlimited money and clout on nutty shit. And, and that is what it is. It's fine, I guess. For years and years, the man's ability... To create new and exciting popular music was kind of the armor, you know, he can't be unwell. He's too smart as an entertainer. He's too talented. Uh, He's too good of a businessman and an influencer to be unwell. Um, And yeah, there's probably you know sidebar there's probably a hefty element of racism and misogyny involved in the celebrity cases as well you know we laughed at britney shaving her head we called her crazy we dismissed her because hey she's so rich and she's so famous and so hot that what could her problem possibly be fuck her and her fake you know famous person problems and it was the same thing with kanye you know he's so rich he's so famous everything he touches turns to gold he's married to the sex pot of the decade he's hailed as a visionary genius and a voice of a generation, and he's not even like 35 years old. And, and when he jumped on stage and interrupted Taylor Swift's award that time, he became a punchline, and he never escaped that punchline. And I think that's really telling in his behavior these days. Over the course of a decade, we normalized this man's kooky behavior as being a feature rather than a bug. It was a part of his brand as an eccentric genius. And not only did we lean into it as the audience, he did too. This behavior and this recent shit where he's he's gone off the reservation and, and said horribly uh, anti-Semitic things, it's the latest in a long line of years of symptoms. Of mental health problems? I mean, I don't know. I The question becomes, do we hold Kanye accountable for saying shit? Like, he's gonna go Death Con 3 on all Jewish people? His words? Uh, or his weird comments about how slavery was a choice a couple years ago? Remember that shit? Um, or even just his newfound love of politically charged prejudice and the perverse juxtaposition of a black icon embracing white-first ideologies, or or at least those that ascribe to them. Um, yeah, I mean, sure, to a degree, Kanye's shaky mental health, allegedly, alleged shaky mental health, uh, is not something we should stigmatize or blame him for, but obviously we need to hold him accountable for it. when When he's now at a point of contributing to the normalization of open bigotry and prejudice... In a way that the the pallid, self satisfied political gremlins can latch onto and use as a legitimacy engine for their own disgusting viewpoints, yeah, he needs to be held accountable for that. I mean, he won't be at most. He might be slightly dis, uh, di- you know, disenfranchised. He's being slightly deplatformed right now. Uh, his Instagram and Twitter are both being limited or locked or whatever. And you know, I wish that. If this is a mental breakdown or a consistent mental deterioration, I do wish help would find him. I don't wish him ill. I wish perspective on the people who have none, because they seem to have everything else, and I have very little, but I like to think that the flip side of the coin is that I can see the forest for the trees where they maybe don't. Uh, (laughs) This is the final form of the danger of our era of celebrity culture, I think. That's why I feel this is really significant to talk about. A celebrity's status and their success is both the cause for their unstable bullshit, and it's also the protection against any real consequence for its symptoms leeching into the public consciousness. A rabid case of famous person disorder became the leader of this country, and he wasn't even that influential of a figure until after he became the leader of the country— so, what happens when someone whose fame and influence is so, so foundational at this point, so bulletproof, so ingrained in our day-to-day consumption of content, that when he actually does start pushing messages of proud hatred, we all, as a collective, decide to do nothing. Except for watch the Saturday Night Live sketch painting him as a harmless kook which you know is what's going to end up happening. That's the most that's going to happen is we'll point at him and make fun of him, and then we'll assume that he and his stupid ideas will go away. They won't. He'll just come back with something more attention-grabbing. And at this point, it's clear it doesn't matter how abhorrent it might be. I'm sorry that it's such a bummer to think about and that I had to bring it down like this. Um... This has been kind of a bummer episode, I'm sorry, but we do need to think about this stuff. Uh, Entertainment is essential to the human experience. It's why I do this podcast, it's why I pay attention to any of this stuff in the headlines in the first place. But at a certain point when our detached observation of the freak show becomes a tacit endorsement, or at least toleration of really disgusting ideals, it's time to hang it up as a society, folks. That was a lot. And uh, I think maybe... (laughs) I really hope that me being on uh, pain medication and stationary in a chair for over a week, uh, I hope that it hasn't brought everybody down with the busted leg blues that I myself have been feeling. (sighs) I'm a little exhausted after all that. Again, probably the pain meds. But anyways, um, look forward to more, uh, possibly less bummer, episodes of media sandwich uh you can subscribe to the show everywhere podcasts are found you can look us up on twitter at media underscore sandwich and send news tips there uh, if you want me to talk about something a little sunnier a little more fun in the entertainment industry that's the way to send them or you can uh email them to media sandwich show at gmail.com And as always, uh, please check out media-sandwich.com for various, uh, blog posts and whatnot that I come up with over the course of my, uh, sedentary lifestyle that I'm leading at the moment. Um, yeah. And, uh, until we meet again next week for, uh, some better news, this was some news. Uh, it was, it was some stuff that's happening and I was Kyle Martinak. I am Kyle Martinak. Still am. Even even one limb less, I'm still Kyle Martinak, And I thank you so much for being a listener, as always. And uh, I think I might fall asleep before I eat my sandwich.